Good afternoon, church, <laughs> and happy Father's Day. We had a very eventful uh, trip back and forth to New Jersey and Pennsylvania last week. In the span of five days, uh, we logged nearly 20 hours on the road, had a beach party. I did a wedding, preached at a church, closed on a house, and even squeezed in a family birthday party somewhere in there. So it was, it was quite the week. Uh, it was very encouraging for us. I've appreciated your prayers and your encouragement back to us. Our kids are pumped uh, because we are living seven minutes from a Chick-fil-A. So, I mean, that, it, I, next time you see me, I'm going to be fat. It's going to be great. So, I, I hate to start all these sermons with this kind of an update, but I figured it's a lot easier than answering 150 questions right after the service. So, I'll, I'll probably do that again next week as well. Um, as you heard before, next week will be our last week with you, the Murawski family last week. Uh, the movers are coming to our house on the 29th to take our stuff away. We close here in Michigan on the 30th. Uh, so next week will be my final sermon with you um, for the time being. But that is okay. I want you to know you're in good hands. The first week of July, Pastor Garrett will be preaching. He's going to lead you in communion, I believe. I'm, I'm assuming so. I haven't confirmed that, but I'm assuming that. Um, I'm also excited to announce, I was given permission to, to tell you this, um, your leaders have locked in an interim preacher for the next few months. Dr. Tim Miller, a professor of New Testament at Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, is going to be your interim preacher for the foreseeable future. And I emphasize preacher, not pastor. Uh, he still has a full-time job at DBTS, so he's just going to be preaching for you, not doing the work, uh, the other work, as a pastor. So I just want to make that distinction very clear, uh, just so that you don't have your expectations different than they should be. Uh, but Dr. Miller comes highly recommended um, by me <laughs> and, and by others as well. Uh, Dr. Miller has not one, but two PhDs. He is sm he's twice as smart as me, therefore. Uh, he's not an ivory tower type academic, though. He's a relatable guy. He's down to earth. He's people friendly. Uh, Tim and I have gotten to know each other over the last few years. He's got a heart for ministry. He has a heart for the church. He has a heart for the Lord and for his word. In fact, Tim and I are publishing a preaching commentary on 1 Peter later this year. It's, it's due to come out uh, sometime around, I think, November is when they scheduled it. So I've worked closely with him, uh, especially over the last year. And I, I just want to emphasize, you are in very good hands. He can handle the word. Uh, and I'm a little jealous that you get to hear him and I don't every, every week. But as for today, we're going to tackle part three of my series on the foundations of a healthy church. You might uh, remember the first week that we saw in scripture that healthy churches exist for the glory of God. Healthy churches exalt Jesus Christ. Exalt was our key word the first week. Local churches exalt God by preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, by teaching sound biblical theology, by giving proper place to evangelism and edification. Two weeks ago, we saw that the church glorifies God when it practices edification through discipleship. Edification through discipleship. Edification means that we build up one another. Discipleship is the process by which we create healthy Christians. We help one another mature in Christ. You, you don't mature in a bubble with no one else around you. Other people help you to grow in your relationship with the Lord. We saw that spiritual growth and discipleship bring glory to God. We saw that mutual edification, church participation, brings glory to God. 
So week one, exalt. Week two, edify. This is week three of the series. And our key word today is evangelize. Evangelize. The church glorifies God when it evangelizes the unsaved. The church glorifies God when it evangelizes the unsaved. That's our big idea of this morning. Now today I'm not going to demonstrate that by just camping out on one or even two passages. What I'd like to do is show you the depth and the breadth of this theme all throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament. Remember the song we used to sing as kids in church? Deep and wide, deep and wide. There's a fountain flowing deep and wide. And then, hmm, and hmm, hmm, and hmm. There's a hmm. Did you do that part too? Yeah, some of you are, are smiling and saying, yeah, you know. That's the Scriptures. They flow deep and wide with the theme of God's people evangelizing those who don't have Christ as their Savior. So we're going we're gonna to look at a lot today. You've got to be ready. We're going to do some sword drills together, okay? If you remember that, too. We're flipping through quite a bit. But before we look at specific application of what evangelism looks like, I'm going to take you on a brief journey, starting with the first book of the Old Testament, ending in the first book of the New Testament, to show you some biblical connections with this theme of evangelism. So we're going to begin in Genesis chapter 12. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis tells the story of creation. Not just creation of the world, but creation of God's people, the people of Israel. One interesting thing about Genesis is that the first 11 chapters, which is about this much in my Bible, the first 11 chapters takes place in the same amount of time as the rest of your Bible. You ever, you ever notice that? The first 11 chapters, same amount of time as the rest of your Bible. And what that tells me is that when we hit Genesis 12, everything starts to slow down and really focus in on what God needs to tell us in his word. And in fact, the further on you get, the closer you get to Christ, the slower that narrative time gets because Christ is the center point of all of scripture. Now, Genesis 12, we begin to read about the creation of the people of Israel. Israel's creation began with uh, Israel's grandfather, Abram, or Abraham. After a brief genealogy in Genesis 11, we get Abram's story right here in Genesis 12. That's where we'll start, Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now this is what we call the Abrahamic covenant. God renews this covenant again and again and again and again all throughout the pages of Genesis, but it begins right here. God calls a man named Abram, later on called Abraham, from the land of Haran, some 600 miles outside the land of Canaan. And he tells Abram, pack your stuff up, pack up your family, and move to a different land. Why? Well, God's got a new job for him. God intended to bless Abram and his family. Look at the promises that you see here. God says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. Why? So that you will be a blessing. And that's key right there. God promises to bless Abram, not just for Abram's sake, but for the sake of being a blessing to other people as well. His relationship with God is not just for his benefit. 
It's for the benefit of other people around him. God says, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who dishonor you. And then he says, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You notice that? Underline that, highlight that, memorize that. All the families, all the families of the earth. So we're not just talking about God's plan for Abraham's family anymore. We're not just talking about God's plan for the nation of Israel. We are not just talking about God's plan for the land of Canaan. We're talking now about God's plan for the entire world. God intended to bless the earth through Abraham and his people. God will bless the earth through the Israelites. This is what we call the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant was never just about the people of Israel. The goal wasn't just the, for the sake of the Jews, but the end goal, the Abrahamic covenant, from the very beginning was always about all the people of the earth. Now, the way that this functioned in the Old Testament was that Israel didn't send out missionaries. You don't see Israel doing that often. I mean, you see every now and then God telling a guy like Jonah to go, and, and how does he react to that? He's not too happy, is he? When you see an Israelite in a foreign country, usually it's because they're exiled there. So the, the game plan that God gave the Old Testament Israelites wasn't get up and, and go. There was very little sending out before the time of Christ. There was a centralized place of worship. That's why. There was a centralized land that God had given them. There was a centralized location for religious holidays. So the land was their inheritance, and that's where they all kind of congregated. There was very little sending out. But what happened in the Old Testament was that Israel, God's people, worked kind of like a magnet. They drew the attention of other nations towards themselves. The book of Deuteronomy, God says in Deuteronomy 4, 6, keep these commandments, talking about the Mosaic covenant there, the commandments God gave, keep these commandments and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people who, when they hear of these statutes, they will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So when Israel acted holy like they ought to have, they caught the attention of the surrounding pagan nations, and that drew unbelievers in to experience the one true God. That's how it worked in the Old Testament. So what began at the Abrahamic covenant continued through the Mosaic covenant, the law, the commandments that we just read about, and it continued into what we now call the Davidic Covenant. In the Davidic Covenant, God promised King David that God would establish his throne forever. God's kingdom would continue forever with David or with one of his lineage. Now, what does all this have to do with evangelism? Let me just recap real quick. The Abrahamic Covenant, God told us his intentions to bless all the families of this world. In the Mosaic Covenant, God gave the Israelites the law so that by keeping it, people would draw other nations to the Lord. And in the Davidic Covenant, God promises a king to reign forever on David's throne. Now, with all that in mind, go to Matthew chapter 1. A good sermon series would not be complete without a brief stop in a genealogy. I'm convinced of it. Matthew 1 is Jesus' family tree. Now, I know you'll be disappointed, but I'm not going to read this whole family tree to you this afternoon. I better not hear any clapping from that. I know you're a clapping group, but don't cheer on that one. But if you know anything about this genealogy, I'll point out a few features to it here. You know it's broken up into three equal parts. 
Each part has 14 names or 14 generations. The first part goes from Abraham to David. The second part goes from David to the time of the exile. And the third part goes from the exile all the way to Jesus. Now there are a couple of features of this genealogy that really stand out to us. First, Abraham and David. We don't start with Adam. We start with Abraham in Matthew's genealogy, with whom God made a covenant. Then we go to David, another man with whom God made a covenant. Both of these men were given a covenant for the benefit of not just Israel, but for others as well, for the nations. So it's significant that they stick out as figureheads in this family tree. Now second, there are a few names that might surprise us in this genealogy as we read it. If you read through, you'll notice that there are several women that are mentioned besides Mary. And that's unusual. Anytime you're reading a biblical family tree, if there's ever a woman in that family tree, pay attention. That's kind of a highlight. Most times genealogies in the Bible only highlight the men. So when the women are there, they stick out and they catch our attention. The three women that are mentioned here besides Mary are who? Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah, whose name is Bathsheba. When you put these three women together, many have pointed out that they all kind of have some common features. What might first catch our attention was Rahab was a prostitute. Bathsheba slept with King David out of wedlock. Ruth chapter 3 was written with some potential innuendo, which might make us wonder whether there was any shady business going on at the threshing floor that night with Boaz. But I don't think that what these women were meant to highlight was their potentially shady pasts. I just read a great book by a, a trio of guys who grew up in inner city Baptist church, uh, which is the church associated with the seminary that Dr. Tim Miller comes from. The book is called Biblical, the Biblical Theology According to the Apostles. Great book. And the next few things I'm going to share with you comes from some of their work. The authors argue in that book that the similarities between these three women are not that they had potentially bad pasts. Rahab is only praised in Scripture for the deeds whenever she's mentioned. Ruth is seen as a virtuous woman throughout the Bible. And the genealogy doesn't actually mention the name of Bathsheba, but it says David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now that's talking about Bathsheba, but the way it talks about her, the emphasis lands on her husband, Uriah. Why? Uriah was a Hittite. And therein lies the similarity between these characters. There's the punch. Ruth was a Canaanite. Or excuse me, Rahab was a Canaanite, a pagan. Ruth was a Moabitess, which is also a Canaanite, a pagan. Bathsheba was married to Uriah, who was a Hittite, who was a pagan. All three of these pagans converted to worshiping Yahweh, the one true God. They became Israelites. Matthew begins his genealogy about Jesus by going out of the way to highlight three individuals in the family tree of Jesus who come from the nations. These people were pagans, they converted to Judaism, and they are now worshipers of God and in the line of Jesus Christ. This opening genealogy is like a giant arrow pointing towards Jesus, but it's an arrow that points through pagans 
from the nations that converted to Jesus. And it's an arrow that points through Abraham and David to get us there. As if to say that the covenant with Abraham is fulfilled in Christ, the covenant with David is fulfilled in Christ. And what was that Abrahamic covenant all about? It was about blessings to not only Israel, but blessings to the nations through God's people. In other words, from the opening chapter of the New Testament, there is an evangelism-centered theme a missions-centered focus. Jesus came to fulfill the covenants, and even in his lineage, we see evidence of God's work in the nations through God's people, just from the very first chapter. Now, of course, there's much more we could say about this genealogy, but skip forward to a moment for a moment to the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew opens with a genealogy pointing to Jesus through imperfect individuals saved from the nations. How does it end? Well, after Jesus dies, after he rises from the dead, he gathers his disciples one last time. And by now, you probably know this verse in Matthew 28, starting in verse 18. Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of what? All nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew's gospel opens with hints of the nation's inclusion in God's people. And it ends not with hints, but with specific, explicit directives for God's people to take the gospel to the nations. Isn't that something? This thread that began in Genesis chapter 12, weaves through the Abrahamic covenant, goes through the Mosaic covenant, goes through the Davidic covenant, ends up being a scarlet thread dipped in the blood of Christ, and now ties the essential mission of the church to evangelism. And of course, you know the next phase of the story too. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and where? To the ends of the earth. Take the gospel to the nations, Jesus says. Evangelize. It's the mission of the church. The church enacts the Abrahamic covenant when it evangelizes the world. Part of the very fabric of the church's existence is to spread the good news of Jesus Christ to the surrounding community and to the people who don't know him. It's to make disciples of all nations. It's to go and to baptize converts. Now, what exactly does that look like? Because I, I'm saying the word evangelism a lot here, right? That's our key word today, evangelism. It was exalt, edify, now it is evangelism, evangelize. When I say evangelism, depending on your background, different images might come to mind. I remember one time walking out of a sports stadium in Philadelphia, and I saw a guy standing on a literal soapbox. He had a bullhorn in his hand, and he was shouting at people to repent and to be baptized and to believe in Jesus. Is that evangelism? I had a friend in high school who would talk to anyone, anytime, anywhere about Jesus. He would be on an airplane, he'd be on the boardwalk, he would be at a restaurant, anyone, anytime, anywhere. Is that evangelism? I used to go to a church that had a gospel message and an altar call 
with emotional music tacked to the end of it at the end of every single service. Is that evangelism? The church glorifies God when it evangelizes the unsaved. And there are a lot of different ways that evangelism can look. Let me highlight just three of them, three biblical ways that evangelism happens in the church and outside of the church today. Three ways. Number one, the church evangelizes through personal testimony. The church evangelizes through personal testimony. I was recently struck by reading the words of Philemon. If you want to turn with me to the book of Philemon, it's a short little letter right before the book of Hebrews. Uh, if you're trying to find it in your Bible, it's kind of tough to find because it's only one chapter towards the end of the New Testament. We're going to read four verses, Philemon, only one chapter, so chapter one, starting in verse four, down to verse seven. And I'll read through these verses and then tell you what this is about here. Philemon 1.4. The Apostle Paul writes, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Now, let me just take a few minutes and analyze some of this. First, Paul is talking or writing to a man named Philemon. Philemon was a slave owner. And this short little letter is about Philemon's runaway slave named Onesimus. Onesimus escaped captivity, and by God's providence, as he's running, he bumps into none other than the Apostle Paul. And Paul shares Christ with him, and Onesimus comes to know Jesus Christ as a Savior. So then what Paul does is he carefully sends Philemon back with, or Onesimus back to Philemon with this letter in hand, encouraging Philemon to not only accept Onesimus back, but accept him back as a brother in Christ, no longer a slave. But Paul begins by saying how grateful he is for his friendship with Philemon and thanks the Lord every time he prays for him. And can I just take a moment and say, that is the kind of relationship I hope to have with you going forward. That's, that's exactly what I'm hoping and praying for. We're going to be separated by some five, six hundred miles, but the Lord hears our prayers. And those five, six hundred miles don't matter a thing to God. I'm going to be thankful for each one of you every time I remember you in my prayers. And I would hope that you would do the same on our behalf. But specifically here, Paul is thankful when he hears of Philemon's love and his faith that he shows towards other believers, and that's a good application for us today too. What are you gonna be known for? When I hear of how things are going in this community, what am I gonna hear? Will I hear of your faith? Will I hear of your love for one another? Will I hear of your encouragement and your fellowship and, and the way that you've shared the gospel with others? What am I gonna hear when I leave Michigan? What kind of reports are you gonna get about me when I leave Michigan? hopefully positive on both sides. But verse six is where I really wanna focus here. Let's read it one more time. Paul says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now this is a bit of a tricky sentence to translate. It's got a lot of possible meaning. So if you had a different translation, it might sound a little bit different than that. 
But here's what I find is clear. The Apostle Paul desires greater effectiveness in Philemon's life. There should be more impact, there should be more result from his knowledge of the good blessings that are in all believers. In other words, the more Philemon understands the nature of the gospel and the wonderful blessings the gospel has on his life, the more impact that should have on his life and the life of the people around him. You see how that chain of events works? The more you understand the gospel and the blessings of Christ in your life, the more that will impact your life and the lives of other people around you. And that impact is best demonstrated here by Philemon's sharing of his faith. So Philemon grows in his knowledge of God. He grows in his knowledge of the gospel. That overflows into greater effectiveness in sharing his faith with other people. And all of that, according to the last clause of that sentence, is for the sake of Christ, for the glory of God. One of the ways that the church evangelizes the lost is through the sharing of your faith, through personal testimony. The more you understand what God has done in your heart, the more you understand the radical change that took place when God brought you from sinner to saint, the more you want to share that with people in your life. The more it results in effective evangelism for you. We're talking about one-on-one personal sharing. You can use your testimony to help others know Christ. Here's how I got saved. This is why I started going to church. This is what God has done in me, and let that lead into a gospel conversation with other people. A life changed by Jesus cannot help but to overflow into effective personal evangelism. What does is, what is Paul say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4? He says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts, why? To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God has shined this light in and through us that we might shine that light for others in this dark world. God saved us that we might share the gospel and see others get saved saved to God's glory. It's, it's hard to overestimate the importance of this aspect of evangelism. This is, what, this is most of what you see in the New Testament, personal testimony evangelism, one-on-one. That's most of what you see. A personal connection where you share the gospel with someone else and encourage them to submit their lives to Jesus Christ. You explain the death of Christ, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. You explain why they need a savior. We are sinners. You explain that faith in Jesus by God's grace is the only way to experience God's forgiveness, a relationship with him, and one day heaven. You share that with your coworkers. You share that with your neighbors. You share it with your friends. You share it with your enemies. You share it with the person sitting next to you on an airplane. You share it with the person doing repairs in your house. With everyone you meet as much as you can, you share that gospel. There's this idea in some evangelicalism that the primary mode of evangelism takes place from a pulpit on a Sunday morning. Almost like it's your job to kind of just show up, and it's the pastor's job to share the gospel, do an altar call, and watch people get saved. Where do you find that in Scripture? What you find in Scripture most is the primary mode of evangelism being personal, one-on-one 
testimony with others. Now we're going to see in a minute that every part of a service, including a sermon, should be infused with the gospel, should be understandable to unbelievers. But the primary way that the church shares the gospel and evangelizes is through you, one-on-one with other people. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 5, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Your godliness has a certain attractional value to it. People will see the difference in your life and be drawn to the light. Sometimes they'll be repulsed by it, depending on the condition of their hearts. But again, this is Jesus saying evangelism is your individual responsibility above all. Jesus doesn't say, I'll share the gospel with people on this mountain. You show up on the mountain and watch me do it. We should all have an active role in evangelizing the lost. So first thing is first, the church evangelizes through personal testimony. But I don't want this to be unbalanced. So second point, the church also evangelizes through biblical ministries. The church evangelizes through biblical ministries. By saying that the primary mode of evangelism is through personal testimony, I'm I'm not intending to say that the ministry of the church is either ineffective or inconsequential or unneeded. Rather, it's a vital part of bringing people to Christ. I mean, how many of you came to know Christ through the ministry of a church? In fact, look at how the Apostle Paul speaks about the church ministries in 1 Corinthians 14. You can flip there, 1 Corinthians 14. I mentioned a few weeks ago the Corinthian church had a few problems, to say the least. One of their problems was that they were puffed up with pride. They were fighting over spiritual gifts. Who is the most gifted in the church? Who's the most prominent in the church? Who had the most baptisms? And in particular, they were fighting over the use of tongues and prophecies in the church. Tongues refers to human language that was not previously learned by the speaker. So if I go to the Middle East and I begin to speak in Arabic without having learned Arabic before, that would be the biblical gift of tongues. If I go to Middle Earth and I begin to speak Elf-ish without having previously learned it, that would be like speaking in tongues. If I roll up to a McDonald's and I can start to understand anything that comes out of those speakers, that would be the interpretation of tongues, right? You see what I mean? It's a known human language that's spoken by someone who has not previously learned that language. That's how the Bible uses it. Now, we're not going to deal with whether the gift is still in use by the church today or not. That's not the point. Or or whether uh, what is called tongues in most churches today actually resembles what we see in Scripture. The point that I want you to see doesn't demand either of those two views. In the Corinthian church, everyone would get up and they would start speaking in tongues, they would start prophesying, and and no one would understand what was going on. It was chaos, it was confusion. So what Paul does is he gives some very helpful, very practical advice here. This is what I want you to see. It's advice that you would give a five-year-old classroom, kindergartners. He says, one at a time, children. Not everyone should speak at once. Make sure everyone understands you when you are speaking, that's important. Very practical advice. And in the midst of that advice, Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 14, starting in verse 23. He says, If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues 
and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What Paul is saying is he's saying, if what you're doing in church makes no sense to non-Christians, it is not helpful. That's good advice, isn't it? It's practical, easy to understand advice. We cannot become so religious in our talk and in our worship that only people who are raised in church understand us. Then we're missing the point. We, we can't become so religious and so entrenched in this that only people who have grown up in church understand the lingo or understand the ritual or understand what we're doing. Churches have to be sensitive to the unchurched. And folks, we are living in a culture and a world that is increasingly moving in the direction of the unchurched. We cannot rely anymore on most people having some kind of religious upbringing. That is a really tough concept to understand since many of you have spent years or decades in the church. You're familiar with the lingo. You're familiar with the ritual. And it's hard to put your mind into that of an unbeliever. But the Bible tells us that what we do in church has to be understandable, not just to the Christians who show up, but even to unbelievers and outsiders. And you know what that implies? It implies two things. Number one, it implies that it was a normal occurrence even in the first century AD for unbelievers and outsiders to come to church. It was normal. They expected that to happen. But number two, the if here, if an unbeliever comes, if an outsider comes, that also implies that even though unbelievers and outsiders do sometimes come to church, the focus of church wasn't on them. The focus of church was on giving glory to God through the fellowship of the gathered saints. I'm going to hijack some modern-day church language. What Paul, I think, is saying here is that churches were to be seeker-sensitive, but not seeker-driven. Here's what I mean by that. I say hijack because I'm not using that term seeker-sensitive in the normal way it's used. That term started out in the right way. Churches saw a need a couple decades ago to speak modern language to normal everyday people, to talk about the Bible in ways that everyone, even those who haven't grown up in church, would understand. That's seeker-sensitive. But what some of these churches did was they started getting into a seeker-driven mode where everything in the church service began to cater towards unbelievers, became about unbelievers, rather than remember that the primary focus of the gathered saints was for professing believers to gather together, edify one another, and worship God. Now, all that to say this. We want our programs, we want our church services, we want every ministry that runs in this church to remember that, number one, unbelievers will be present. That means we should regularly present the gospel everywhere as much as we can. We should preach the gospel. We should teach the gospel the gospel should be infused in every ministry of the church from children's ministries to teen ministries to adult ministries to the, the care ministries that you just heard about a few minutes ago. The church evangelizes through biblical ministries. But at the same time, 
we can't forget that the primary evangelism, perhaps even the most effective evangelism, happens outside of these walls. We can't any longer expect unbelievers to regularly come to us. And we don't want to dumb down what we're doing to try to trick them to come. Instead, we disciple believers to know how to share their faith, to go outside these walls and share that word of God with unbelievers out of here. Again, doesn't mean that we don't share the gospel in here. We do. Everything we do is infused with the gospel. But you have to learn how to share your faith because unbelievers aren't flocking in here anymore. That's not the culture we're in any longer. So the church evangelizes through personal testimony. The church evangelizes through biblical ministries. And third, <coughs> excuse me, the church evangelizes through focused missions. <coughs> excuse me. The church evangelizes through focused missions. When I say missions, I'm not, I'm, I'm talking about taking the gospel to places outside of where we live, to people who either have no access to the gospel or people who are living in areas that are severely devoid of Bible teaching evangelical churches. That's what I mean. Missions is not sharing the gospel with your coworker. That's evangelism. They're, they're similar, right? But missions is going or sending a missionary to, let's say, Lithuania to translate the Bible into a new language so an underserved people group can hear about Christ. That's what missions is. Listen to the Apostle Paul's words in Romans chapter 10, verse 13 to 15. Paul said, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now listen to that process. We want people to be saved, right? We want people to be saved, right? To be saved, to be saved, they must call on the name of the Lord. In order to call on the name of the Lord, they must believe in the name of the Lord. To believe in him, they have to hear about him. To hear about him, they need to have someone preach the gospel to them. And to preach the gospel to the unreached, you have to be sent to the unreached. That's missions. Now I'm going to say a few things here that might offend. But these are things that need to be said. So much of modern church missions is spending money to reach the already reached. We send missionaries to places that already have established churches or places that already have multiple missionaries or places that already have a Bible in every hotel room or places that already have churches on every block. A few years ago, Pastor David Platt, who used to be the president of the International Missions Board, IMB, David Platt did a secret church event on missions and he shared at that event, I'm going to, the next few statements here come from his material. These are great things to think about but sobering things. He shared that over 3 billion people in over 7,000 people groups are currently unreached for the gospel. Let that sink in just for a moment. 3 billion people, 7,000 people groups right now unreached. Unreached doesn't mean they've heard it and rejected it. 
Unreached means they don't even have access to it. They have never heard the name Jesus. They could be born, live, and die without once hearing the name Jesus Christ. Over three billion people. Churches currently in America are spending 99% of their missions resources to reach people with the gospel who already have access to the gospel. To put it another way, churches spend less than 1% of their missions resources. I'm not talking about their whole budget. I'm talking about the missions slice of their budget, less than 1% of that to reach those 3 billion unreached. Now I tell you this, not to shame you, not to guilt you, but I tell you this because this church is in a position to correct that imbalance from the start. Think about the value of only taking on missionaries that are going to reach the unreached. It's not, I'm not saying that other missionaries are doing unimportant work. I just want to make sure I'm clear about that too. That's not my point. My point is not that pastors in America or missionaries in America or Bible professors in America are doing unimportant work. My point is to put a premium on the work of those who are going to the unreached. Look for missionaries who are taking the Bible and translating it into languages that don't have the Bible. Look for missionaries who are going to what we call the 1040 window. It's a part of the world between 10 degrees and 40 degrees where, where the most amount of unreached people are located. That's going to mean that once your budget allows it, you're sometimes going to have to say no to good missionaries in order to support the best missionaries. That's not easy. You've got to say no to missionaries who are doing good things in order to start supporting missionaries who are going to those places that desperately need the gospel most. Oftentimes, churches take missionaries mainly because there's a family connection or they're associated with a certain denomination or missions organization or they come from a certain location. Those aren't bad factors to think about. But the primary factor needs to be, are they going to a place where they are reaching the unreached? That's where we want to send and support our missionaries. If we bypass the good to, to focus on the best, perhaps we can make a small dent in some of those statistics. I would humbly recommend that every time you select a missionary here, you are selective with the criteria of the Great Commission. Is this missionary helping to fulfill the Great Commission to reach all the nations, to make disciples of all the nations? Are they reaching an unreached people group? Now maybe some of you need to consider being the one that goes. This is probably the harder thing that I've got to say. Even if you're older, maybe you're further along in your career, there are some great missions organizations out there like Training Leaders International, TLI. They take people with normal life skills, and I'm saying normal as in like everyday jobs, teachers and plumbers and mechanics and whatever it is that you might do, and they put them to work in unique ways on the mission field for the glory of God. It's worth praying about. What are you gonna do with your retirement? What are you gonna do with the last third of your life? Maybe you're not a goer on the mission field, at least be a sender. Send a missionary to the field to do work. Support your church and your missions in some unique and personal way. 
The church evangelizes through focused missions. We've seen the church glorifies God when it evangelizes the unsaved. Three simple ways to do that. Biblical ministries, personal testimony, and focused missions. <clears throat> Healthy churches have a balance of all those three. Healthy Christians have a balance of all three of those. So I would encourage you to ask yourself some personal questions based on these methods of evangelism we've seen today. Who have I personally shared the gospel with lately? Think about that question. Who have I shared the gospel with lately? If the answer is no one, or if the answer is I can't remember, make a commitment this week to share the gospel with someone in your life. Start with one person this week, pray for them tonight, and tomorrow begin to share the gospel. Ask yourself, how am I engaging in evangelism within the church? I mean, I know things are just starting out here, and sometimes it's difficult to know where to plug in, but I, I didn't plan on this, but Pastor Garrett had a great plug right before. If, if you've got gifts, if you've got skills, if you've got passions, if you've got hobbies, use those things for the glory of God. Sign up on that sign-up sheet and make sure that the church knows and the leaders know these are the things that you're able to use for God's glory and missions and evangelism. And third, I would ask you to ask yourself, how am I engaged in missions? Do you support any missionaries individually? Have you been praying about going on the mission field yourself? Have you been praying for individual missionaries? Have you felt a call upon your life to do something more than what you're doing now? When we see people come to know Jesus Christ for the first time, God gets the glory. God's mission for the church begins to be fulfilled. Let me end with this verse in Philippians chapter 2. Listen to how it connects missions, people confessing Christ as Lord with the glory to God. Paul says, Therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Missions brings glory to God. Let's pray. God, I ask that as we think about what our role in this church is, our role in missions, our role in evangelism is, that you would help the believers that are here today to have a bolder mentality in sharing the gospel. Let them be courageous, Lord. Let them take risks for you. Let them share the word of God more often. Let them share their personal testimony. Let them get involved in ministries here that shares the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would stir up hearts in this room of missionaries that can be sent to unreached peoples. Father, I thank you for the rich heritage that is before us here. I pray that it's not wasted. I pray that you would use this community of believers to further your kingdom on this earth, to fulfill the Great Commission, to connect all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant that all the nations might be blessed through you and your people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.